0: Look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet.
1: For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring Pro Football Talk, The Dan Patrick Show, The Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports.
0: Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, Ed Werder, formerly of ESPN, and Jed York, the CEO of the San Francisco 49ers, just after they had a very newsworthy draft. I asked Ed Werder if he has a little bit of quiet outrage, even a week after being laid off by ESPN.
2: Uh, I felt like I've you know, never done a better job because I think I'm still as good covering games as anybody anybody has.
0: I asked Jed York, what do you think of the performance of your two rookies kyle shanahan and john lynch in their first nfl draft
1: i just i think they work very well together you know we were very very prepared going into it we obviously knew the board very well we knew what we were looking for in terms of scenarios and what could potentially come out and we executed last night
0: now my conversation with ed Worder. back on the mmqb podcast with peter king uh happy to be joined by ed Worder, formerly of espn and um, I really like Ed Werder's new Twitter handle. It's Ed Werder RFA, which uh, for those who don't know what an RFA is, it's a restricted free agent. And Ed is that way. I'm going to have him explain it here in a second. But Ed, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Peter. I have all the respect in the world for you. I consider you a good friend and as such, it was jarring to just hear you introduce me for the first time as a former ESPN football <laughs> reporter.
0: Well, first of all, talk about Ed Werder RFA.
2: Okay, so um, I got laid off, and I tweeted the fact that that had occurred, and before it appeared in the transactions column, I recognized my Twitter handle seemed hopelessly outdated all of a sudden, because it was at Ed Werder ESPN. Well, now I'm not at ESPN anymore, and so I changed it, and I changed it originally to Ed Werder FA, free agent, And then a short time later, I got a phone call from somebody at ESPN saying, you know, you're not really a free agent. And when they explained that to me, I decided, well, I am, I guess, more of a restricted free agent. So (laughs) uh, that's why I changed it to what it is now, which is Edward or RFA. And it's it's a football term, as you well know. And the reality for me, and I assume most of the other people, if not all of the other people who have been laid off by ESPN, is that ESPN has made it clear they intend to honor our contracts. We got a letter from the legal department the next day at the door uh, giving us that very piece of instruction. At the same time, they also advised us, we expect you to honor the contract in full as well. And it's not necessarily a no-compete clause specifically in the contract, but the contract as a whole very clearly uh almost gives them ownership over people as far as using their likenesses the recorded voice the live voice in any sort of sports media medium and and so your their position as it's been articulated to me is that we will pay you in full as you're currently scheduled to be paid every two weeks you'll get your full benefits Uh, and that will continue for the duration of your contract, provided you don't go work anywhere else. If you go take a job anywhere else, we will not uh, be looking to allow you to negotiate or buy your way out of the contract. Uh, We're not going to allow for an offset to make up the difference and save us some of the money. Uh, If you want another job, then you will be forfeiting the salary that we owe you under terms of this contract.
0: Ed, I I wanted you, if you can, to... Explain to people exactly how this happened. Let's go way back toward the end of the season. When did you first know that being laid off was possible?
2: Well, you know, um, I think it was October of 2015, ESPN laid off about 300 um, middle management, producers, people that, you know, weren't the public face of the network. And at the time, we knew that that had only partially accomplished uh, a mandate from Disney, which is the parent company that owns ESPN. And we all knew that there were the, the second round of layoffs were going to be directed at the people on camera, anchors and reporters. And for that reason, my contract was coming up. And, and really, for the first time, my goal in negotiating my contract at the time was not you know, to get as much money as I possibly could, or get the biggest raises I possibly could. Uh, I wanted uh, a number of years. I wanted, I wanted security, so that the next time my contract came up, I was on ESPN was on the other side of these layoffs, and I figured that that would make me less vulnerable. Uh, and ultimately, it didn't. Uh, I really thought that the fact that I had over two years left on my contract would really shield me, especially since I felt. Uh, I was doing, you know, a a high-quality job. I was contributing to uh, coverage of our most important asset, the NFL. Uh, I was working at games and in the studio, and not many other people did that in my role. Uh, And yet, you know, I subsequently found out they laid off people who had just signed five-year contracts. Uh, And so now it's laughable to think that the fact they were going to have to pay me for uh, two-plus years was going to in any way protect me when they were willing to pay people – uh, for twice that. you have any time.
0: Ed, do you have any theory about why they would do that? Why not just let these people work? why why are they just trying to get the numbers down or whatever it is they're trying to do?
2: I, I think that's a great question and it's one I, I certainly have and I, I'm not sure that I'm right, but the answers that I've been able to solicit are two. One is that somehow with this reduction, uh, from an accounting point of view, Disney will no longer look at, at this as a salary uh, issue. It's now a severance. The, these are are accounted for as severance packages, severance money, uh, which apparently is counted for differently in the Disney company uh, in terms of salary uh, and, and severance. And the other thing I understand is that the Disney will receive some sort of significant tax benefit from doing it uh, before yeah. June 1st. But to me, it really, like, for the common guy like us, we don't understand because... You know you're going to be short-staffed. Uh, you're still going to have all this programming. Why would you be paying people not to work, especially people who, uh, until very recently, were considered your some of your very best people on your most important project? It does seem nonsensical, but that's the explanation I've gotten. Whether it's right or not, I can't be sure.
0: How did you find out?
2: I was in New Orleans to cover the draft, and uh, this is I, we're recording
0: this on Tuesday, May two. The draft, so, six, so exactly six days week, ago, you were in New Orleans.
2: Exactly a week ago, I flew to New Orleans that night. I stayed up until about 11 o'clock talking to Saints coaches uh, to begin my uh, prep for the draft, which I begin covering on SportsCenter the following Wednesday morning. I uh, stayed up until about 11 o'clock, had appointments the next day to talk to Drew Brees and Sean Payton. Mickey Loomis was going to have a press conference. I was going to be there for that. Um, and um, I knew the cuts were going to be announced that day. And I got a text message from Seth Markman, my boss, telling me to call his office. And at that time, I thought that could only mean one thing. And it, it seemed surreal to me. But when I called him, he informed me that uh, there was an HR person in the room, which certainly <laughs> kind of confirmed my suspicions. Uh, and he read me uh, a statement that I assume he read multiple other times during the course of the day, um, that I was being laid off, that it, it didn't diminish in his eyes. Uh, the quality of my work, um, it was effective immediately, and then um, came the odd turn, which was they asked me uh, to stay and cover the draft uh, and then stay in New Orleans cover the same draft for the next three days. And I'll, I'll give Seth Markman credit for this. Uh, he, he did that. He called me and told me before the draft, knowing that uh, I would have every right in all likelihood I would leave and they wouldn't have anybody in New Orleans to cover the draft um because they could have obviously let me cover the draft, made me think I had survived the cuts fly home after three full days, exhausted days of draft coverage and then told me I was laid off, and really that's the only way I could have been more upset uh than I was having them tell me when they did. So I do give them credit for that, but I do still think uh it's very rare that a company would call an employee uh effectively fire them and then in the next breath ask them if they wanted to stay and cover the draft. <laughs>
0: So Ed, we've had a couple of conversations since this happened. You know, you
2: laughed at that. Not I mean, not so much.
0: Right? No, I know that. I know. But we've had a couple of conversations, and one of the things that uh, that interests me is your reaction. You knew that there was a chance that this was coming. Regardless, uh, it could have come to almost anybody at ESPN. So you knew this was a chance, but you still have some quiet outrage about it. Why is that?
2: Well, because I, I devoted seventeen years of my career to this company and uh I felt like I've you know never done a better job because I think I'm still as good covering games as anybody anybody has, um, in terms of reporting both pre and post game live uh or in any sort of, you know, way you want to write a post game piece or whatever. And then I thought um I, I had really improved in terms of being in the studio on NFL live and NFL insiders and sports center shows, uh, I felt like I brought unique content every single sh- to every single show that I was on. Uh, I felt I had developed a contact when news broke, even if it happened during a show, I could quickly get somebody on the phone who could explain it to us uh, and then we could provide that insight to our audience almost immediately. And I, I just don't think that we can continue or espn can continue uh, to produce the same quality nfl shows without the people some of the people who have been laid off i simply don't think the people who will be taking some of these roles some of the people who will be taking these roles are as good as as i am or some of my other colleagues who have been let go
0: do you still find yourself waking up and saying my god i don't work at espn anymore
2: it has been really hard like it took me a number of days to realize um, that I didn't work at ESPN anymore and I wasn't part of our NFL team anymore. I felt like I had really given my all to compete for them. I, I you know, I, you know how it is in this business—you work holidays, you work, you know, you leave your family at times that are important to them and go do this job because we all put the job first way too often. And I know that from my own personal situation. But um, yeah, it, you know, the first night, like I couldn't sleep anyway. Barely slept. I woke up at two thirty the first morning, and I literally had to walk myself back through the whole day to make sure that what I woke up thinking had happened had actually taken place. Like I had to say, okay, wait, now where 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 were you this morning? Oh, I was okay. I was in New Orleans, and, and what happened? Oh, I got a phone call. Yeah, I, I called Seth Markman, and yeah, he fired me. So it was it was surreal, and it was like that for a long time. And uh, I'm not completely over it even a week later, but. I mean, I've had a few calls. I'm I'm trying to see what there is out there for me, if anything. And I really don't know what's going to happen with my future. I thought I had three more years to work at a great company where that I devoted 17 years to. And, you know, in one day I find out that's not the case. And quality quality of work wasn't the reason.
0: Do you find that you're feeling that there is a stigma to getting laid off? What did I do wrong?
2: I guess I would feel like that. Yeah. I mean, you wonder, yeah, it's, you're stigmatized by it. I've never been fired before. Um, and to me, it does I mean, it matters whether it was with or without cause. I didn't do anything to provoke this. Um, in my mind, I was completely devoted and capable and committed and everything you would want from an employee. Uh, you know, I felt like I helped mentor some of the young people on our shows. I've gotten incredible letters from, you know, young producers who worked on NFL insiders who were getting their first turns uh, to, to produce a half hour or an hour long show, and 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 them told me, hey, when I saw you were on my schedule, I knew I was going to have a good show. I knew I was going to have a good day. Uh, we appreciate that you looked out for us, and you know, researchers the same. I got this incredible note from a researcher named Doug Claussen, who I call stat. Uh, I call him my stat guru. And he just came up with incredible information and 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 you know segment suggestions and so forth. And I really advocated for him and 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 I, I reached out to him and I replied all to a lot of emails. And but yeah, it's just shocking not not to be a part of all that anymore. I I don't really know what I'm going to do now.
0: You got a phone call from Roger Goodell.
2: I got a mess phone message. Yeah, I missed I missed a call. Uh, he left me a voicemail. Um, saying that he he had been made aware of what had happened, and he was wanting to uh, extend his concerns to me. Um, subsequently, offered you know to help me in any way that, that he or his office could. Uh, I mean, I don't think the NFL is is thrilled with the idea that some of the people at ESPN who probably devote more hours of a day to covering the league than than even the, the league's own network. Uh, that he's very happy about the fact that some people who talked about football in the way that the NFL wants football to be broadcast to its viewers and fans um, in favor of people who are more inclined to bloviate and maybe um, uh, focus on things that are less desirable on not as football oriented, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I, I, I heard from a lot. Like, you know, you're, and even though the draft was going on, and like even today, I've had general managers reaching. Uh, three general managers today reach out. Hey, we're doing business draft. I just want to make sure you know you're okay, and if there's anything I can do, and you know, I heard from a a, a game official, Peter, a referee. Uh, you know, you know, we don't. Other than uh, you did your series, and it was incredible, but for the most part, journalists just don't come into contact with officials on any kind of regular basis where, like, I know this official. I've never talked to him on the phone before. I may have seen him at a game or whatever or on a flight or something, but this is somebody who had to go out of their way to get my phone number, you know? Like, I've never heard from this person before. That was pretty incredible. I heard from the senior director of basketball operations for the Washington Wizards. I'm not even an NBA fan. I didn't even know this guy was was on the planet. And he told me he was a closet Cowboys fan, and he always relied on me for his his coverage. And and he appreciated the way I did it, and so that that's that's all very rewarding, you know. And like I said, some of these younger people at ESPN, I mean, it's really like it's like listening to the eulogy that would be delivered at your funeral. Fortunately, only in a professional sense, and hopefully, not it's not that ultimately. But uh, for the moment, that's what it seems like.
0: Ed, what what sort of thoughts must you have? Has got how old are you now?
2: I'm fifty six. So as a Until guy, tomorrow, when I, tomorrow tomorrow I'll be 57.:
0: Okay, well, when this podcast hits, you'll be 57 <laughs> years old. So here's the question. Part of this has to be rough because you know, there are, there are lines of people in the media business, in the journalism business, much prettier faces than you and I as well who are uh, desperate to get into the business and who want jobs and quite frankly will work cheaper than you will work. So, do you have a fear that you actually may not get another job in the media business?
2: Well, I'm hoping that my my reputation and my body of work will create opportunities for me, regardless of my physical appearance and how it compares to others who may have a more desirable traits. Um, i I think that there are very few people um in any medium covering the NFL who who would say, I'm, I can't compete with them um, at the highest level of covering our league. And so I hope that would make me attractive in a way that maybe physically I'm not. I mean, I didn't get the job because I'm physically attractive to begin with. So to me, probably aging uh, and to you is less, you know, less a concern than it might be to some other people um who have gotten a job maybe more because of that than because of the quality of their work or their ability to report or their contact list. Yeah, yeah, I mean yeah, I don't know I'm gonna get a job. I I, I don't know that for sure. I know I've had some people reach out to me pretty quickly. Um and I've only talked to one of them at length about uh what they envision doing if they were to offer me a position. But yeah, I, I don't know if I'm gonna work again but uh I also you know, we this goes back to sort of ESPN telling me if I find another job and I, I want to take it that I'm walking away from their money, you know, I would just say don't underestimate how much I like to play golf.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, finishing up with Ed Werder, so are you depressed for the uh, University of Missouri grad, the Ohio U grad, the Northwestern grad from a really good journalism school that uh, is going to walk down the uh, the graduation aisle this spring, and is going to hope to have a really good 35 year run in the business like you have had. You worried for their futures?
2: Yeah, I'm worried about I'm worried about journalism in general. Um, I just don't think it's going in a very good direction. And right now, I see you know you and I both worked in newspapers. That was our background, and I just I see television now sort of going down the same primrose path that newspapers began going down about 20 years ago, um, and that I think hastened me leaving the newspaper business because it seemed doomed. And uh, people, people don't read anymore. You know, they 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 read Twitter. They read they they don't read Gary Smith and Rick Riley uh, and Frank DeFord or you or me. You know, and they don't read long form stuff for the most part. They they read everything in 140 characters. I mean, how many times do you tweet something and people will say they can't even bother to look back through your timeline five minutes to see what you're referencing? Yeah, you know, and they have Google, and they don't even want to. They don't even want you. They can't even spend the time to go look something up. They well, like, the, you, you, you know,
0: the, the scary thing to me is, and again, I don't know what the numbers are really, but I have a feeling what the numbers are. Um, that there's a very good chance that on our site, you know, a story about the draft grades, I'm not a big fan of draft grades, but Chris Burke, I think does a really good job. He's a smart guy, but the story about draft grades, which the reason why I don't like them is very simple. I don't think anybody knows how any of these guys are going to play and trying to predict that is like trying to predict the weather in six months. And, and, I feel confident that his column on draft grades, as good as it may be, is going to get more people to read it than a story that I wrote on the 49ers that I think is probably one of the five best things I've ever done in my life. And, you know, being embedded in the draft room of the team that made the most happen on draft weekend. And so that is the way the world is going. I tend to think a generation ago... If I was in the draft room with the, uh, I don't know, with the Mike Holmgren, Ron Wolf Packers in 1993, that that would have been a sensation, you know, but here... It a
2: cover of Sports Illustrated, the magazine, which everybody got at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so, but, and and look, I'm not, the one thing that nobody wants to hear from a dinosaur is, well, this is the way it used to be. It was a lot better in those days, and I get that. But there's something that is sad about all of it. That to me, um, I think with all the aggregation sites, you know, Big yep. Lead, spin Pro Football Talk. I mean, and some of them do fantastic original reporting. But a lot of their reporting is commenting and and doing stuff about stuff that's out there. And again, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to remake the business. I understand the way the business is, but. I mean, I believe that you're getting laid off, that whatever happens to sites that do original reporting, all of that is a harbinger of really bad things to come because what it means is that there's going to be less original reporting and a lot more opinions being made without original reporting. Some good, cogent thoughts from Ed Werder about our business and about what's going on in his life. Much, much appreciate him taking the time.
1: You're listening to the MMQB
0: Podcast. I don't know about you. I don't like to shave. Who does? Nicks and scratches on your face, they're not fun. And let's face it, razors are so expensive. That is, I thought they were, until I got my first package of razors from Harry's. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. So Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys just fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own blade factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. Now here's where it gets good for you. Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades, they're giving you their trial set free. They just need you to cover a $3 shipping fee. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, and rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. Stop messing around and start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer, a $13 value for free. Just cover shipping. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com king right now. That's harrys.com slash king. And can I just say one thing about this Harry's set that I got just like you're going to get In this free trial, here's what's amazing about it your fingers do not slip off this handle, the razor handle. Do you know how, when your hand gets wet, that your hand always slips down on the razor? So you end up like right with your fingers right near the blade. This is a perfect razor handle, the best I've ever used. Now, obviously, you want good blades, they've got good blades. This razor handle, you're gonna think you're shaving in heaven. That's harrys.com slash king. Do it right now. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm with uh, Jed York of the San Francisco 49ers uh, on the day after the plan that Jed York put in place had its first very big day. With all due respect to free agency and some of the players you got in free agency, Jed, I think that it's the first day of the draft that really kind of tells the tale. We're sitting here on day two of the draft, and I just wonder, I know this is a broad question, but sitting there last night watching your new general manager, John Lynch, your head coach, Kyle Shanahan, uh, your new scouting czar, Adam Peters, and Parag Marath, your, your longtime and
1: trusted cap
0: guy... What'd you think of your new team and how they did last night?
1: I just I think they worked very well together. You know we were very, very prepared going into it. We obviously knew the board very well. we knew what we were looking for in terms of scenarios and what could potentially come out, and we executed last night so it was a very interesting thing and
0: and as I describe in my column this week, you know. I was sitting with your um with your with three of your of your guys and you know right before the draft and and I didn't know what you were going to do and I was very surprised to hear them say that it's Miles Garrett and uh and then it's Solomon Thomas and it's Reuben Foster those are the three guys who you loved in this draft I mean above all and I was thinking to myself god Reuben Foster and then John Lynch and Kyle both said, you know, even though his position is not quite as important, say, as a quarterback or a great pass rusher, let's say, he's the guy who we really love for his ferocity of play and everything like that. At the start of the draft, is there
1: any way you could have imagined getting two of those three guys? Zero percent chance. I, I mean, like, you couldn't have scripted it better in a movie. I mean, we were going back and forth of... You know, if if Solomon goes, if if there's a trade, and we were looking to trade back and try to pick up more picks and and just add things to the team, you're happy with Ruben just because of how much you like the player, and you went back and forth between those two guys, and the fact that Ruben kept slipping and falling, it was, I mean, it, it was just an awesome experience and feeling that literally, like, we didn't stop for the entire draft. I mean, you were really on, especially once he he went past Baltimore. I think that's when it really I – th- I think people expected Ozzie to take an Alabama guy. He obviously likes Alabama guys, and there's a reason why you like Alabama guys. But once that happened, it was like, okay, we, we switched back into to, to 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 let's go get this thing. And that's when it started to go get Ruben.
0: What sort of feel did you get for your new team watching them just in a football sense, particularly John Lynch running his first draft – Now, Jed, that, by any measure, is a pretty risky choice, getting John Lynch out of the broadcast booth. He has not been a scout. Give me your observations on John Lynch and how he handled the first
1: round. Oh, I mean, John, and I think I've said this a few times publicly, both John and Kyle are sincere and honest and direct, and who you get in the interview is who you get at work, and that isn't always the case. And I think you saw that last night with John, where he's great at just bringing an entire group of people together. And whether it's AP, you know, helping set the board with John and the scouts, and Kyle knowing exactly what he wants his players to look like in Prague, you know, knowing the draft charts, you know, knowing the, the trade possibilities, and, and doing a lot of the calling. You watch how John helped orchestrate all of that. That's why it was so successful, because you allowed everybody to do what they do very well. And, and John pulls it all together. You know, it's interesting. Of all the things I really didn't
0: expect in this first round, I didn't expect to see what sort of a kind of a, I wouldn't say dominant, but an influential person that Parag was, uh, Parag Maratha, in, in this draft. And I think it's because I think overall most people feel that both late in the Harbaugh era. And then, you know, under Trent Baalke, uh, with the last two coaches, it wasn't, he didn't have a position seemingly as prominent as the one that he has taken now with uh, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan. What about his role and why is it that you trust him so much?
1: Well, I mean, I think Prague's is easily one of the best negotiators, cap guys in the league, um, just super bright, very passionate. And again, I think John allows him to do what he does best. You know, there's a lot of negativity out there about Prague of, you know, trying to run the drafts and trying to make football decisions. And he doesn't try to make them. He tries to do the things that, you know, scouts and GMs aren't necessarily the best at in terms of what's the right value for this? You know, how do we negotiate that? That's where Prague plays a great role. And Kyle really set it up the night before and said, Prague, like I want you to speak your mind. Even if it's something that we don't do, I just want you to speak your mind and just just let us hear what your thoughts are, because you're a bright guy and you look at things differently than, than just quote-unquote football guys do. And I, I think you saw how everything worked together last night. The other thing about him that was very interesting is that, I, I don't mean to
0: make this sound uh, at all controversial, because it isn't, but... He's not afraid to talk some crap to the big GMs in this league. Like he's not afraid to tell John Schneider, "Are you out of your mind?" I mean, that's a that's a stupid offer. What are you What are you talking about? And you know, here's John Schneider, a you know a guy who any year can be executive of the year. And I think that speaks to sort of his familiarity and the regard that other people in the league probably have for him.
1: I I think that's very true. The people in the league that know Prague have a high regard for him because they 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 know how hard he works and how bright he is. And, you know, he's he's a genuine person and when you talk to him you get that and even if there's a little banter back and forth with John or somebody else that he's talking to, you know, they're always able to there's no hatchet, but if there is, they're able to bury it after the fact and kind of laugh about the interactions that take place.
0: I, I what I've found over the years is that guys like Mike Tannenbaum, Howie Roseman, Prague, I find that a lot of, quote, football people, football lifers, are uncomfortable with people who, you know, and Cleveland did it with Paul D. Podesta, even though that's a little bit of a different story. But I find that they're uncomfortable with people who haven't walked in their shoes and who don't know it. But in many cases... I view that as a major benefit because it's a different voice and you're seeing things a little bit of a different way.
1: And, and Prague's a different voice. And I mean, you talk about a guy that was the salutatorian at Cal, you know, Stanford Business School. Like that's, that's a very impressive resume. And for a guy to, you know, quote, only work in football with that resume, <laughs> especially in Silicon Valley, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of skill sets that Prague has that, that translate outside of football. It it's a little it's a little unfamiliar to people that are just in the game. And Prague's not somebody that's trying to, you know, write the money ball of football. He just sees things a little bit differently, and obviously that's a piece of what goes on in the NFL. And it's it's knowing what's the value of a draft pick, what's the value of a trade, and how do we get something done and get the most for the team, but also not not take complete advantage of somebody where nobody wants to do a deal with you ever again.
0: You know what I, I noticed in, in your round one, do you often sort of, as a round is going on, rewrite the value of draft picks and do draft picks mean, uh, have different value as the draft goes on?
1: Well, the, the picks themselves have the same value for us, but you know, you look at a guy like Ruben who was so high on our board you know, we, you saw us, we had a couple of things and it's like, well, you know, you know, this team wants the third round pick and, you know, well, we don't know if this team's going to take them. And you're trying to calculate in your head the odds of like, what's, what's the least that you have to give up to go get the player that you want. And, you know, we were probably willing to give up more to move higher up in the draft. And luckily for us, he kept falling. And I think that's where Prague kind of keeps you honest of, Yes, we see him as a top five player on our draft board, but we don't have to pay to go get the top five pick if we're trading to 20. And I think that's where he helps coaches and GMs from making too much of a push to go get somebody. And you know, ultimately, at some point, you, you have to just pull the trigger. And and I think that's what we were able to do because if we didn't pull the trigger at 31, I, I don't think he would have been there day two of the draft. I think he was going... You know, probably at 32 to New Orleans. Yeah, there's no doubt about
0: it. With Sean Payton on the phone with uh, with sort of the Foster family and everybody where he was, he clearly was going to go at 32.
1: It's the MMQB Podcast.
0: Every football team knows the two-point play can be a winning move, a real game-changer, just like a great draft pick. So why don't you trade up to State Farm and let them help you combine your home and auto insurance? Two great policies, protecting two of your most valuable possessions, all with one company. It's a smart move that can save you time and simplify your life. Because State Farm understands your life is about more than insurance, especially this time of year when every draft-binging fan knows life is all about football. It is all football. So make State Farm your pick and score yourself a great big win by combining your home and auto insurance. It's just another way State Farm is here to help life go right. Talk to an agent today at 1-800-STATE-FARM. With Jed York. So Jed, I want to go back in time a little bit and just ask you, as you sort of developed your kind of affection for football. Uh, there's a, a, a picture that I first saw in the New York Times, and now I've seen it in your building. Yeah, it's right over there. It's from Three Rivers Stadium, I believe, with Bill Walsh, your uncle, Eddie DeBartolo, who owned the 49ers, and then you just on the bench before a game in Pittsburgh. And first of all, what do you remember about that day, that that
1: photo maybe, and that scene, do you have much of a memory of that day in Pittsburgh? So obviously growing up in Youngstown, you know, the Browns and the Steelers are the two big teams in Youngstown, Ohio. And, you know, it's about 50-50. And when one team's doing better, you know, the other the other kind of is, is put aside a little bit, but it's never worse than 60-40 split between those two teams. So when the Niners would ever play in Cleveland or Pittsburgh, it was a huge thing for my family. And, you know, I remember in 87, you know, we were one of the top teams in the league that year. We, we were a number one seed, and I'll never forget the loss of the Vikings later that year. But there was a game you expected to win in Pittsburgh, and when you didn't win, it, it was like life-ending to, to my family, especially my uncle, when you didn't win at home, where, where the family was from. And it was, you know, you could tell Bill had stress, Because there was just a different level of intensity when when we played in northeastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania. I've got to tell you a story about your uncle and his ownership
0: style. And it will not surprise you. (laughs) It won't. In 1989, the first football game I ever covered for Sports Illustrated was San Francisco at Philadelphia. The great Montana going into Philadelphia to play the best defense in the league. And the 49ers were down, I forget, probably 20 points at one point in the game. Montana threw four touchdown passes in the second half, and you won. You, the 49ers won. So I'm on the sidelines near the tunnel where the team was going to go off. And Eddie is standing there in the tunnel and he's almost crying because he just he keeps saying, I am so proud of these guys. I'm so proud of these guys. And he's getting emotional as he says it. The gun goes off, players are coming off the field, and here comes Ronnie Lott. Your uncle leaped into Ronnie Lott's arms and hugged him around the neck. <laughs> it's like a woman hugging her husband coming back from four years of in the in the war. And he and he, he, he yells into Ronnie's uh ears, he's I'm so proud of you guys, I love you. You know, and I just thought that is Eddie Debartolo, the owner. That's isn't him. It?
1: That's him. I I mean he was so passionate about it and loved the guys so much, and you see it now. I mean, you know, he was fortunate enough to be honored with a street name by candlestick this last weekend. And a lot of the guys were honored to Ronnie and Joe. There's a park named after Dwight. And, you know, they they all still stick together. They're family. And and I, I think I try to keep a piece of that with me. The NFL is very different today, certainly post-CBA of having a salary cap and things like that. But you, you try to keep that sense of family because that's what he instilled. Do you... What sort of lessons do you think you take from him?
0: I mean, it, it, let me preface this by, by just saying that uh, one of the reasons I wanted to come here and do this story is of because of the amazing parallels between 2017 and 1979. In 1979, you're coming off a 2-14 and 14 season. You've got no quarterback of the future. You've got a new head coach. You've got a new general manager. And you've got a 30-something owner. In 2017, coming off a 2-14 and 14 season, new head coach, new general manager, no quarterback of the future, and a 30-something owner. And basically, in 1979, except for having a broken-down O.J. Simpson on the roster, there was, like, no hope. And in 2017, after what you've been through the last three years, a lot of Niner fans would say, oh my God, no hope. What are we going to do? So... How do you look at the comparisons of where you
1: were then and where you are now? I I think the difference now, um, you know, I think we have some talent on defense. We have some high picks, and obviously adding two first-round picks yesterday is a, is a huge thing. And, you know, when you look at Kyle, nobody should ever be compared to Bill. It's not fair to Bill. It's not fair to anybody. But certainly an offensive-minded guy, you know, working with an offense that there's not a lot of big name talent I think Kyle has shown that he can get the most out of any offense and I think that's the thing where he's been patient where you would think got an offensive minded coach you had two first round picks you spent them both on defense you know Kyle understands that we need to build this thing the right way with the right pieces and and he will work with the group that we have and and this is not something that needs to get fixed and built in a day in one draft and one free agency, it's going to take a little bit of time to get that nucleus and foundation together. And when we do, it should be something that should sustain itself for a while. So I I do see the similarities, at least in the thinking of how do we build this the right way.
0: One of the similarities, I think, between Shanahan and Walsh is that they both have this feeling, in my opinion anyway, that I don't really care what the outside world thinks of me. I'm confident in what I'm going to do, and we're going to do it this way. And if it doesn't work five years from now, I'll be the offensive coordinator somewhere. But he's going to do it his way. I think that's the one thing about Kyle Shanahan over the years that I've noticed. He has strong opinions about what he should do, rubs some people the wrong way. Heck, Bill Walsh rubbed Paul Brown the wrong way. So, and again, look, it's ridiculous for a guy who's not coached a game That's to be right. in the same sentence That's with right. him. But
1: some of the personality traits ring a little bit true. But I think what what I love about both Kyle and John, were they weren't 49ers assistants and they didn't grow their career here, they both have such strong 49er ties. And I think, you know, Kyle's dad took a lot from his time here to... Denver to help them get to two Super Bowl victories. You know, John Lynch played for Bill Walsh, played for essentially Bill Walsh disciples through his entire college and pro career. So when you talk about guys that know and understand the 49ers sort of history legacy lineage, they, they didn't necessarily grow up here, but they grew up with those ties and with those roots. So when we talk and when we speak, we speak the same language. And I think that makes it very easy for people here that, that know what the 49ers mean, but not people that are necessarily from outside of that tree understand what it means to be in this building. We're not coming off of a 2-14 and 14 season and didn't have a good year. We're the five-time Super Bowl champion San Francisco 49ers who were the team of the 80s and and arguably the team of the 90s at least the, 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 the beginning of the 90s, that's, that's who we are. It's a different franchise. It's a different story. And I think they understand the history of it, but they also know that you're not going to build that or rebuild it in a day. If you want to do it and do it right, it's going to take some time. It might take a little bit more work. And that's why John, I mean, I love his hashtags on Twitter. It's brick by brick. And when you get enough of the bricks put together and you do it one at a time, you end up with a pretty nice cathedral when it's all said and done.
0: I'm with Jed York, the CEO of the 49ers. Jed, uh, a lot of people in football raised an eyebrow or two when you hired John Lynch because he had not been a scout. Um, He was in the broadcast booth. The last person of a high profile who did this was Matt Millen, and they're not throwing many parades for Matt Millen in the city of Detroit. Why did you
1: hire John Lynch? So when we interviewed coaches, I mean, we said very early on, we wanted there to be a good relationship and, and, and just a mutual understanding and respect between the general manager and the head coach. And, you know, Kyle didn't really have somebody that was tied to him. A lot of the coaches kind of came with a package and they had somebody that was going to be their guy. And when we talked through it. There were some great people that we interviewed and, and guys along the more traditional route. And Kyle brought it up. You know, I think John had talked to Kyle about it. Kyle's dad obviously knew John very well. And Kyle just pitched it to me. He said, you know, what do you think of John Lynch? And, you know, at first it's like, okay, well, you know, it's a former player. And the same type of stereotype that, that the world kind of had for John. And it's like, well, what's, what's the point? Like if we're, we're going to hire Kyle, we're not going to hire Kyle until after the Super Bowl anyways. Why not sit down with John Lynch and just get to know him a little bit and see if this is the right fit? And when you see it, it's not just a guy that shows up on Sundays to do games for Fox. It's a guy that watches film religiously and knows the league inside and out. It's a guy that spent a lot of time with John Elway inside of that building, you know, getting groomed for this type of role and and trying to get ready and prepared for it. And if you're not prepared for what it looks like in a draft room and what the process is, it's very, very hard to step into it. And I think John was ready for it as much as you can be without actually going through it. But the best thing about John is there's no ego. And you, you can say that about people, but when you know, John, it's, it's true. And I I mean, it almost like he's almost too good to be true as a human being, Because he really doesn't care what it looks like for him personally. He cares so much about the team. And he's able to bring the most out of everybody in the building and watching our free agency. We signed 13 or 14 players. And a lot of the guys, you know, he helped sell and bring in because of his genuineness and his passion and, and how he kind of approaches the game. And the players all respect him. And that's that's what you need. You need people that can bring all the pieces of the building together in a way that makes you know the whole stronger than the than the sum of the than the pieces. It was interesting. He's almost like a. He's
0: he's almost like a kind of a goody two shoes guy. He's Captain America. Yeah, yeah. Because he is. Uh, you know one of the things that he showed me was all these uh, DVDs or CDs of of Bill Walsh addresses to the team and everything. And he's flipping through it and he goes, yeah, this is, I'm going to do this, this off season. I'm going to watch a lot of these this off season. I need to know the heritage. I need to know all this. And, you know, again, it's, it's just, he's an interesting person in that he sort of reveres football history and reveres the game and, you know he's a little bit. When I proposed this story to him, and I said, "You know, you're doing what Bill Walsh once did, and you're in almost exactly the same starting point that he was." I said this to him at the league meetings. He
1: goes, "Peter, I've got goosebumps." <laughs> I mean, he's just—he does—he genuinely he does. He's does. a G Wiz guy. Yeah. <laughs> and and then you meet his family. You know, you know his family. They, he's got four great kids, and you know they they wanted to to take a tour of some of the tech companies and Prague's wife works at Google and, and Jen's a a great executive at Google. She's awesome. So they set it up and you know, they're walking around the Lynch family and she's just like, you know, these are four kids that three of them are in high school and they're all like treating each other with love and respect and hugging each other. And one of his daughters had a knee injury and they're taking care of her and they're trying to carry things for her. And they're just like, this isn't, this isn't normal. Like, and I mean, she was just like shocked and floored of like how awesome of a family they are. And, and it's obviously a testament to both John and his great wife, Linda. This is the MMQB podcast. podcast. Are you
0: hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Now, posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. One more time. It's free. What are you waiting for? ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. Uh, Finishing up with Jed York. So Jed, um, you have had kind of a rocky run here in the last four years. In some cases, you know, I've read some columns about you and I've seen some of the uh, Twitter chat about you. And I'm not sure whether you're the CEO of the 49ers or or you're Charles Manson. Um, But I wonder, how have you taken being the sort of poster child for the 49ers
1: decline? You know, it's just part of it. And and if you're not willing to take the negative... You, you you can't stand there and take praise when you go to three NFC championship games in a row, you go to a Super Bowl and get, get close. You, you can't stand up there and take a bow. And then when you have three bad seasons in a row, you know, ending with a two and 14 year last year, and you have four coaches in four years, you have to be able to take responsibility for that. You have to take the arrows during that period of time too. And, you know, for me, I'm not trying to be a 9-7, and seven, hey, look, we're, we're a decent team and, you know, we're, we're kind of in it. I, I want to make sure that we're winning championships. And, you know, we've made some bets that, that didn't pan out. But I'm going to continue to make bets that I think are going to be the right things for this franchise long term. And ultimately, I want to build a franchise that's going to have a head coach and a general manager here together for 10, 15, 20-plus years and win multiple championships. Finishing with Jed York, two more quick
0: things. Do you sit here right now and regret anything that happened with Jim Harbaugh?
1: I don't know if regret's the right word. You know, we we had a lot of success together. Um, you know, we tried several times to get an extension done with Jim, and for whatever reason, those didn't culminate. And and ultimately, as, as successful as it was here, I think Jim is – very happy. And he's doing an unbelievable job at Michigan. You know, we obviously didn't have success after Jim left. I don't know that we'd be sitting here with John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan if, if something happened. And, and, and I don't know that it would have worked long term if we did get something done. I regret how we performed the last two years. You know, I regret that, you know, the relationship was frayed between me and a coach that, you know, did a lot of great things for this franchise. And I actually talked to his brother, John, briefly at the, at the owner's meeting. And he said, you know, he goes, you guys need to get together sometime and have dinner. And I said, I'd love to do that. You know, I'd, I'd love to get together. And I think enough time has kind of passed where you can, you can let whatever, whatever issues were there be buried and just, you know, truly be thankful for three great years when, when nobody expected us, certainly in 2011, to to beat the Saints the way we did, to get close and, you know, be two muffed punts away from going to a Super Bowl in 11 and just all the things that happened. You know, I'd love to sit down with Jim, not in front of cameras, not in front of anybody else, but just just share a, an evening with him and truly say thank you and and wish him the best of luck. Not obviously when he plays Notre Dame, but, but for the rest of the season, wish him the best of luck. It's so interesting. I
0: I did a conversation just like this one with John Harbaugh and I was asking him about Jim and he told me a story about uh, how they went on vacation. They go on they go on vacation as families uh, you know, together. And uh how last year that they were in a vicious pickup basketball game <laughs> with a bunch of kids in the game and that not shocking. Jim, and that Jim had to win. And so at the end of the game, Jim walked by John and in a terse voice said, won anything lately? And you know, and I said, Man, imagine living with this guy year after year. But uh my my one last question to you is, you know, last year was such an interesting year for your team for a different reason, because of Colin Kaepernick. And as you look back now, I thought Jeff Chedia of ESPN did a great movie about sort of the impact of Kaepernick nationwide. It was so interesting to see how it influenced and and, and and how it affected people around the country. Two-part question. How did you look at it from the inside last year? And what is the sort of impact, do you think, of what Kaepernick did last year?
1: Well, if I take this second piece, I think the impact can be much greater than just Taking a knee, I think the impact can be something that hopefully in a divided time in our country can can allow people to see folks that are mistreated. you, you know, you see some of the injustice that takes place in the inner cities. and and it, there's a huge socioeconomic divide. and you know we ask our police officers to to wear so many hats. And you know, when there are negative things that happen with police officers, you you see that you know they're not always trained to be social workers and and be first aid and first responders in in a way that there're some issues that that need to be addressed and i think there are some times where police officers don't do the right thing if we can build that bridge between police officers and the inner city communities and and the the lower served communities that they're supposed to serve i think that can be something that's a long-term legacy that the 49ers can be a part of. I think when you go back to the first part of the question with Cap, you know, he, he was voted, you know, our, our sort of team leader last year. He had the Len Eshmont Award, which is a very, very big award on this team. And there were players that, that didn't like what he did. There was certainly a clear divide in the locker room, but I think people respected that it started a dialogue that instead of, you know, we're not going to talk about something, it's going to be, well, this is your issue, and, you know, I don't like what your issue is. I think he actually started a dialogue of guys that didn't necessarily talk all the time. You know, it might have taken us off track from what our purpose is, is to win football games. But I think in in a bigger scheme of things, I, I think it laid a foundation of something where we allow guys from different backgrounds and different walks of life to openly discuss things in the locker room and hopefully, over the long run that that brings your locker room closer together.
0: what do you think happens to him now? You know I mean, does he have a future in football or in some sort of social justice area? do you think
1: I, I think it depends on what he wants to do I, I think he really certainly is passionate I know he's passionate about social justice um, and I think he was willing to sacrifice a potential future football career for things that he felt was important and you know, for him, I think he's a very talented player. I think he's a he is a good kid. There's a lot of people that, that misunderstand Cap and misrepresent Cap. And it doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, like everything that he did. But I think, you know, if he gets a chance, I, I know he's going to work hard at football, but I know what his passion is in terms of, you know, making the world a better place. And, and, I, and that's real. They, that's not something that was drummed up and was fake. That's real.
0: If one of the 31 other owners – or or franchise runners were to say to you, Jed, what do you think of this guy? Is it going to be too much of a distraction? Should we consider bringing him in? What would you say?
1: You know, I think Colin has said that you know he's not going to take a knee. Um, so I think from his standpoint, I think he knows if he's going to play in the NFL, he doesn't want to be a distraction. And I think he has figured out over the last year how to balance and separate being a football player and doing things for social justice. Uh, So I don't think he would be a major distraction for folks. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens between now and the start of the season, whether somebody picks him up.
0: Jed York, thanks so much for taking all the time. Thanks for hosting me here in Santa Clara. And uh, good luck to the 49ers this year.
1: I appreciate you. You've been good luck in the draft room, so we're going to have to get you (laughs) back at some point. (laughs) Thanks a lot. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast.
0: My thanks to my guests, Ed Werder and Jed York, for some really enlightening thoughts this week. So, a couple of thoughts about the just-completed NFL draft. And some of this is going to go against the grain. As I wrote in Monday Morning Quarterback, I think it's ridiculous that the general manager of uh, of the Chicago Bears, Ryan Pace, is being raked over the coals, for trading two third-round picks and a fourth-round pick to move up from 3 to 2 to draft the quarterback that he wanted, Mitchell Trubisky from North Carolina. The popular thought around there, uh, you know, out there about this move is that Ryan Pace could have sat right at number 3 and absolutely unequivocally could have gotten Mitchell Trubisky uh at Draft pick number three instead of moving up to number two in the trade with San Francisco. And I believe that it's likely he could have stayed at number three and gotten uh, Trubisky. But I'm just going to tell you one of the things that I learned after being embedded in the 49ers draft room over the weekend is how little individual teams know about what other teams are going to do. For example, When Trubisky was taken by the Chicago Bears, John Lynch, who runs the draft for the San Francisco 49ers, yelled out in surprise, Trubisky! They picked Trubisky! Like he was totally shocked, which he was. So... And that was not the only time that they were shocked in San Francisco over what happened. And the, and the reason is because out there in the public, everybody thinks, well, you know, you guys know what's going on in the draft. You know who's going to pick who. They don't. I'm just telling you, the vast majority uh, of these guys in the league, especially in a competitive situation, like Ryan Pace would not tell the 49ers. I saw it happen. He would not tell the 49ers who he was going to pick if he traded up to number two. And so essentially what uh, what happened is that you know the the, the the Chicago Bears felt that they had to make a trade to ensure that they were going to get their quarterback. Now, people have said, well, they would have gotten him anyway. And I think that it's probably an 80% chance, as I said, that they probably would have gotten Trubisky at number three. But can you really know for sure? Are you really sure that the Cleveland Browns, sitting there at number 12 and loving Mitch Trubisky, can you be really sure that the Browns were not going to trade from 12 to 2? Well, you can say it's likely they weren't going to trade from 12 to 2, but could you be sure? Absolutely not. And, you know, the final thing I would say the last team to trade from 3 to 2 to get a quarterback was 1998. The San Diego Chargers traded from number three to number two in order to be in position to take, as it turned out, Ryan Leaf. They would have settled either for Manning or Leaf at the top of that draft. They just wanted to get one of those quarterbacks. So San Diego ended up getting Ryan Leaf, and part of the cost to that was a future number one pick, their number one draft choice, into in 1999, as it turned out. So you know. The NFL uses this thing called the draft trade value chart. All the teams have it. It assigns point values to each pick in the draft. And so the thing that amazed me when I looked at this draft pick trade value chart is that the, the amount of draft capital that Ryan Pace spent, according to this chart, was 580 points. And the amount of draft trade cap value that the uh, that the San Diego Chargers spent 19 years ago was 1,980 points, three times the amount that the Chicago Bears spent to move up to get Mitch Trubisky. So all I'm saying is that you can say it was a dumb trade. You can say it was a foolish move. I disagree for a very simple reason. If this is your quarterback who you think is going to be your guy for the next 10 years and you've got to pay a premium to get up and go get him, I'm paying it. Because you can say whatever you want about, oh, they, they, they absolutely knew that he was going to be there at three. If they knew he was going to be there at three, they wouldn't have made the trade. Nobody can say with absolute confidence that Mitch Trubisky would have been there at three. And look, finally, this, I'm, this is, I have no dog in the fight. I'm not close to Ryan Pace. I happen to like Ryan Pace. I know him some. Talk to him once or twice a year. But this isn't about a relationship I have with Ryan Pace. This is all about trying to look at this thing dispassionately. And when I look at this thing dispassionately, uh, if I wanted to make absolutely sure I got my guy who I thought was going to be the quarterback of the team for the next 10 or 12 years, I I, I do not think that this is too much to pay. Thanks to my guests, Ed Werder and Jed York. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Larry Fitzgerald. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern, On Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Zip Recruiter, Harry's, and State Farm. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.